questions and answers. What makes other religions wrong and Christianity right? How can we prove the world was intelligently designed when there are so many things wrong with it? Is it true that we live in the best of all worlds? These are some of the tough questions teens asked at our recent Youth Apologetics Conference. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, we're going to be listening to a message that was taken from our 2020 Evian Youth Apologetics Conference. Annually, Pat brings in guest speakers from all over to teach and equip the youth of today. Today, Pat will be answering some of these challenging questions here in part two of this series, Tough Questions Teens Ask. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, you know, we just finished our Youth Apologetics Conference, one we have every year, and one of the most favorite times of the conference is when young people can ask myself and our speakers any question they want and we get some really tough questions here so we've been doing our series because we had over 70 questions asked at this past conference we weren't able to answer them all so i took some of the best questions put them in five categories apologetics bible evangelism sexuality and teen issues and i've been addressing several of those questions here in this series and so this is part two of our series of tough questions teens ask and I've been going through some of the questions on apologetics that uh, young people at this conference asked and they asked some real difficult ones so you want to hear many of the questions that they asked just listen to this series here it's been a great series because young people ask some of the most challenging questions of all well here was a question that was asked can you prove God is real through testable methods empirically well, that's a great question and that's several parts to this question first of all can't bring john forces god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth so it's not like i can bring god into the room and say well here he is you know grab him feel him check him out all right because god is spirit but you can see the effects of god and those you can test empirically you know let me give you an example you go through a town and you see that the houses have been completely leveled to the ground. The trees are bent over in one direction or broken and they're all going in one direction. All right. What do you assume? Well, you assume, especially if you're in the Midwest where I lived for 20 years, that a tornado has come through the town there. How do you know? Well, you look at the evidence. You look at the effects. All right. And you can see that a tornado came through. Same thing here. Although you cannot sit down and grab God or test him empirically, you can definitely see the effects. For example, you look at the world around you, all right, and you see complexity and design. For example, in the nucleus of a cell, I mean, we now know through microbiology, it is as complex as the city of New York. I mean, that's how complex the nucleus of a cell is. Now, you look at that, and you say, what caused that? That's an effect. What is the cause? All right. And a highly, highly intelligent, very powerful being created something like that. You look at our solar system and how planets are placed in the exact order, in the size that we need to allow us to have life upon this earth. The sun is the right size. The atmosphere is the right thickness. Water, when it's 
in its solid state. It expands and floats. You know, it doesn't sink to the bottom, allowing us to have life upon the oceans. The core temperature of the earth is the exact temperature that we need, the thickness of the crust of the earth, on and on and on. Shows you there's complexity and there's design that allows us to have life upon this earth. Now, you put it all together and you can say, well, it's just, you know, one in a trillion, 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 trillion chance that somehow, you know, the universe exploded and we, you know, we're able to have life upon this earth or... I believe a more reasonable conclusion is that complexity and design point to an intelligent designer or the God of the Bible. And so although God himself, you may not be able to experience empirically through your senses, the effects of God, you can definitely see and experience. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and come to a personal relationship with God, and I know that this is a little more subjective, but when you come to a personal relationship with God, then you can experience God in a personal way and applying his truths and seeing how it comes to pass and you experience in your life. Those are some ways we can experience God in a very personal and, as this person asks, empirical way. Next question here, is it biblically or theologically right to believe that God created the Big Bang? Well, the point of the Big Bang, and there's a lot of compelling scientific evidence for the Big Bang, but the whole point, and I don't know the fine details of the Big Bang, you're going to have to talk to a cosmologist or an astrophysicist if you want the fine details on that. I would highly recommend a book by Dr. William Lane Craig on this issue. On this one, if you want more specifics and in-depth from a philosophical position, I would highly recommend Dr. William Lane Craig. He wrote a book on the cosmological argument there. I would highly recommend that. But what the Big Bang shows you is that the universe has a beginning. All right. So that's a theory that Christians do not need to be afraid of. And that causes a lot of trouble for atheists and pantheists, right? Because the pantheists say the universe is eternal. But if it has a beginning, they're in trouble. Then the atheism also has a big problem because whatever has a beginning must have a cause. And if the universe has a beginning, then the universe must have a cause. And the God of the Bible is the most reasonable cause. You see, a big bang requires a big banger. So something willed the universe to come into being. So if the universe has a beginning, and that's the point, if the universe has a beginning, then the universe must have a cause, all right? And according to Big Bang theorists, Einstein's theory of relativity, time, matter, and energy are all interconnected. You can't have one without the other. In other words, the universe exploded into being out of nothing, and somehow you've got to explain that. And that fits with the Genesis account. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. The Hebrew word there is bara, out of nothing. God created the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it's a theory that Christians do not need to be afraid of. All right. It shows the universe has a beginning and therefore you must identify its cause. And the most reasonable cause is indeed the God of the Bible. Next question is, how would you defend your faith if someone asks you to explain why I think evolution is false? Well, we've got several great radio shows on that on our website, evidenceandanswers.org, answered by some of the top scientists in our country today. So for more detailed response, go listen to those interviews. But basically, you know, evolution, Darwinian evolutionary theory is taught to us as the only, only reasonable explanation for the origin and diversity 
of life here upon the earth. However, Darwin's theory never explained the origin and how we got the diversity of life that we have. It never did. It tried to, but it has failed in its explanations. The origin of life. How do we get life from non-life? Well, the Darwinists have never been able to explain it. They have not. The Ure Miller experiment there in the 50s ended up being a failure. Back in the 50s, Ure Miller did an experiment in which they recreated Earth's atmosphere and then to simulate lightning, they put an electrical charge. And so they recreated Earth's atmosphere, had an electrical charge there. And what came out was two amino acids, alanine and glycine, which are part of a protein that formed DNA. Well, you're still a long, long way away from showing how we got life from non-life. I mean, it's an incredible jump to go from non-life to these extremely complex structures to form proteins that form RNA and eventually DNA and eventually go from life to non-life. I mean, it's, as we're learning in microbiology, it's a huge, huge, huge jump to make. And so you're still a long ways away. However, you know, you ever wonder why you haven't heard much from the Uri Miller experiment since then? The flaw in the Uri Miller experiment is that he had the wrong atmosphere. He created the early Earth's atmosphere and said it contained hydrogen, methane, and ammonia gas, and water vapor. And he based it on early star formation, you know, what he felt was the early star formation atmosphere there of the Earth. However, the Earth's atmosphere was probably based on water vapor and volcanic activity. And so they recreated what was the correct atmosphere of the earth and it was water vapor carbon dioxide nitrogen and hydrogen and once again charged it with electricity to simulate the lightning and what did it produce nothing they have done this experiment thousands of times with the correct atmosphere and they have produced nothing they have not been able to produce anything all right that's why you don't hear about this experiment uh, much anymore. So Darwinists have never been able to answer how he got life from non-life. Then another fatal flaw is that there's no mechanism for macroevolutionary change. All right. Microevolutionary change is change within a species, okay, like different breeds of birds or dogs. We agree that that happens. But macroevolution is the creation of new organs and new body parts to create a new species. And that's what you got to show. You have to show through the natural process we can create macroevolutionary change. And that's where Darwinian theory has failed. The mechanisms for change are natural selection and mutations. And we've discovered those two do not create macroevolutionary change. In fact, those only preserve the strongest of the species. For example, let's look at natural selection. If I have a very furry husky and a short fur dog and I put them in Alaska, which one will survive? Well, the husky will. It's got more fur so it can survive. Now we move to the desert. Which dog would survive? Well, the short-haired dog would survive. All right? But have I changed the species any? No, I haven't changed them any. It's still a dog, whether it's got long hair or short hair. All right? I haven't changed the species. So natural selection maintains the strongest of a species. It has not shown it can cause macroevolutionary change, new organs and body parts. Mutations, we know that the vast majority of mutations are harmful, right? If a neonatologist doctor comes up to you, you know, in the birthing room and says to you in the hospital, sir, madam, your son, your daughter has a mutation, you don't jump for joy. 
you break down and cry, it's a disaster every time, okay? However, according to Darwin's theory, you have thousands of mutations that occur to a species. They're all beneficial. They happen very quickly, all right? Something contrary to what scientific study has shown, that the vast majority of mutations, very few, very few, are beneficial. The vast majority are harmful. Also, we know there's a natural limit to mutations. You can only mutate a species so far, then it's too weak to survive. Also, for example, you take a poodle, all right, and if you throw a poodle into the wild, if it survives, the next generation isn't going to look more like a poodle. It's going to go back to its original state, looking more like the wolf. So the mechanisms for change are not there. Then we are missing transitional forms, right? In the fossil record, we should be seeing thousands of transitional forms. And the problem is we haven't found many, and that's fatal to Darwin's theory. For example, we know that according to Darwin's theory, the rat evolved into a bat, you know, eventually got wings and turned into the bat. Well, do we see in the fossil record these transitional forms, rats with quarter length wings, then 50% wings, then three quarter wings, and then full wings? No, we don't see that. We see the in the fossil record, full rat, full bat, and we're missing all these transitional forms. We don't see from lizard to bird. We don't see the transitional forms. We see them in their full form. One of the events that happened in history is called the Cambrian Explosion. Now, if you want to use the Darwinist dates, that's fine, okay? 500, 600 million years ago, boom, all the species appear in their full form, and they really haven't changed since. We're missing all those transitional forms. That seems to fit with the biblical account, God created each according to its kind, right? So those are some fatal flaws of Darwin's theory. Those are just some of the flaws you can point out when sharing with your friend who thinks Darwin has answered the questions to the origin and diversity of life. Unfortunately, Darwin's theory is the only one that's presented to us as the only viable explanation for the origin and diversity of life. And it has not answered those questions. I believe intelligent design gives a more reasonable answer based on the evidence that we have. So go to our website, Evidence and Answers. You can get more detailed response from our scientists there. Next question is, why is science always refuting Christianity? Well, science is not always refuting Christianity. In fact, science complements Christianity. It's basically your worldview here. And many will be surprised that Christianity gave birth to the modern sciences, right? You look at the founders of the modern sciences, Faraday, Babbage, Sir Isaac Newton, and others. These men believed in a creator, and many of them were committed to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the Christian worldview. It's because they believe there is a design. There's an order to the universe, and the design of the designer can be studied. That's why... You don't see the sciences develop in the Eastern pantheistic cultures or in the animistic cultures. It's the Christian worldview that gave birth to the modern sciences, and it was the ground, the worldview that allowed the sciences to flourish. And Christianity and science were allies for hundreds of years. It's only in recent times that they have been made to look like enemies and the scientific world was quickly hijacked by two non-scientists named Darwin and Huxley and brought under the naturalist or the atheist 
worldview. And that's the worldview that dominates the sciences today. And so that's why it's made to appear that science and Christianity are in conflict when indeed, if you look at the scientific data, it's the Christian worldview that best explains the scientific data that is out there. So that's why you need training in Christian apologetics if you're going into the arena of science. In fact, in all academic arenas, it's great to be trained in Christian apologetics and have a good understanding of the Christian worldview. And if you look at the data correctly, I believe the Christian worldview gives you the best explanation of the sciences. And the more and more we're discovering exactly how complex life is, not only here on earth, but how complex the universe is, it's moving more and more. The evidence is mounting for an intelligent creator. The next question is, if God is all-powerful, how come he doesn't stop all murdering? Well, you know, this is a tough one here on God and evil. And the basic premise here, if God is all-powerful, how does he allow evil to exist and continue? Well, basically, we have much more in-depth answers here on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. So go in there and type in this question. You'll get much more in-depth answers to this one. But basically, very quickly, God is all-powerful. Right, And God created beings who are perfect, created in his image. Well, perfect creation has got to be able to do the greatest act of good there is, which is to love. All right, But love requires free will. And in free will is not evil. Nobody fights to be in bondage. Everyone fights to be free. But in freedom or in free will, there is the potential for evil. And in God extending to man, creating his image free will... Adam chose to go against God, and that's how evil entered into the world. And so God allows men and women to exercise their free will, okay? Because if you're going to be in a relationship with God, you have to choose to be in there. You have to obey God out of love, not out of compulsion. If God struck down people every time they chose against him, then they would not be obeying him out of love. They would be obeying him out of fear, all right? And Nobody wants to be in that kind of relationship. Or if God programmed us to obey him, then we are not free creatures in a love relationship. We're simply robots. So God allows us that freedom to freely obey him or not to. And unfortunately, some of the consequences of fallen man, sinful man, and the exercise of his freedom results in some very tragic things. All right. But this is not the way it's always going to be. God will someday judge mankind and eventually execute his justice. But until then, he's being patient, wanting us to freely choose, turn from our sin and repent and join him. But even through tragedy, Romans 8:28, all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Somehow, even through tragedy, God teaches us something valuable and uses it to bring about his purpose. So even though tragic things like murder happens, God uses it to bring about his purpose. It doesn't stop the will of God and somehow he uses it for the good to accomplish his purpose. It is through tragic circumstances that many of us came to faith in Jesus Christ as we began to contemplate, why is this happening? What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? We began to contemplate the bigger questions of life, the questions that really matter. And it's through these incidences, many of us came to faith in Christ. 
Next question here is, why should I trust the Bible if it was written thousands of years ago? Well, great question. The reason you should trust the Bible is because it's God's word and it's true. And truth is absolute. It's true a thousand years ago and it's true to this day. And so truth does not change over time. What was true a thousand years ago? A triangle has three sides. Well, that's true today. Right? Two plus two equals four. That was true a thousand years ago. It's true today. God exists. God is love. Jesus died and rose again. God's commands are true. Those are truths written thousands years ago. It's true back then, and it's true today. That's why we should trust and believe in the Bible. Its principles are not outdated. If it's true, then it's true for all time. Our final question for this segment is this. How do we know if what the Bible says is actually true? Couldn't it have been just written by a really imaginative guy? Well, to briefly answer this one, we know the Bible is true because of the evidence. You know, as I stated in my seminar, we know the Bible is true. It wasn't written just by one guy. It's written by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year period. And with such great diversity, there's tremendous unity. Also, there's over 700 events predicted in the Bible, and these Prophecies have come to pass. There's no book like it, all right? And only an eternal God who can see the future perfectly can predict future events with 100% accuracy. And that's what we see in the Bible. Also, we know that the Bible is not legend or myth because of the archaeology that's there. As I stated in my seminar, Dr. Randall Price, well-known archaeologist, states that there are over 100,000 discoveries that confirm biblical accounts, people, places, and events, over 100,000 related biblical discoveries. There's no book that has that kind of historical archaeological confirmation. Okay, that shows you this book is not a legend or myth that is indeed a historical book, and we have thousands of historical evidences to confirm that. Then we have Jesus Christ who claimed to be the divine Son of God, he confirmed his claim to his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. All right, we have the New Testament, very accurate historical record that records the life of Christ. The evidence for the resurrection has never been beat. So a guy who claims to be God, prophesied and accomplished his own resurrection, he affirms the authority of the Old and the New Testament. So all of that, is evidence that indeed the Bible is indeed the divinely inspired Word of God and it can be trusted in what it teaches are indeed the words of God and it is indeed true. Well, that completes this section. We've run out of time to answer the rest of the questions, of course. There are just a lot of these tough questions from these teenagers at our last conference here, and I just answered a few. And I had to answer them very briefly, like I did on stage. I'm just answering them off the top of my head here. For more complete answers, if you want to go more in-depth on the things that I talked about, answers to these questions, go to our radio website, evidenceandanswers.org, and you'll find more in-depth interviews, articles, and answers to many of these tough questions that these teenagers asked. I encourage you, for more in-depth answers, go there at evidenceandanswers.org. It's been great to be with your teenagers. These questions have been great, and it's been great to be with you. Hope you join us again here on Evidence and Answers. run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. 
We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church Bible study or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcast, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.